But these seven I am's that we're talking about come from scripture. These are uh, proclamations that uh, are, are stated for us in scripture. Now we know that Jesus asked his followers at one point, who do the people, who does the crowd say that I am? And they gave him an answer. And then he asked his disciples specifically, but, but who do you say that I am? And they gave an answer that you're the Christ. And those are all important questions and answers for us. And we have sermons about those. But that's not what this series is about. This series is about what does Jesus say about himself? Who does Jesus say he is? Not what's the public's opinion or what the disciples claim, but who does Jesus say that he is? Last week, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Today, we're talking about I am the light of the world. You heard a longer passage read for us, uh, John chapter 8, uh, 8 through 12. You could read, or excuse me, 8 chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, up through verses 20. You could even read down through 30 to kind of get a big picture of all this. But as a reminder, verse 12 simply says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have grown up in church. I have read that phrase. I have heard those words. I've heard messages about it for years. And I understand English well enough to know what the words mean. But I would say for a long time, I didn't understand kind of the, the meaning behind it or something a little deeper. And so I've learned over years or I've had to, to look at things and study. And even in preparation for this message, even a few more things came to light. I want to share some of that with you to help you out also. To understand Jesus' comment and the context of his words, what he says there, we need to go back in time, back in biblical history, to about 1,500 years before Jesus. So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, we're going back another 1,500 years approximately. When you go back in the Old Testament, you read in the book of Exodus, you read about the Egyptian slaves, who are the Hebrews, that come out and, and are taking out of slavery and are given their freedom. God brought a man named Moses to free this people group out of Egyptian slavery and to make him his people, the lowest of the low of all of society, and to, to show the world through this lowly slave group that God is the God of them and of everyone. That's what's going to happen here. So they are brought out of slavery and got out into the desert and were there for a whole hot minute before they started complaining and wanting to go back and doing a number of things. And so what ended up happening, we read it, is we believe, you know, well, God punished them, but they spent 40 years wandering around in the desert. They literally spent their time there. The first 40 years of freedom was just out in the desert being led by God God would lead them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. This is kind of my provision to show you the way, maybe even to cool a bit of the area with the cloud, but certainly to provide light and, and direction at night. But during these times, the Israelites had to do things differently. They worshiped at a portable church, for lack of better words, called a tabernacle. It could be torn down, picked up, and moved to where they needed to. Not easily, but it still was movable. It was portable. And they lived in tents, really, or tent-like structures where they just, as they wandered through the desert, whenever God moved them, they had to pick up and go. There was no permanent housing. None of this was going on. Eventually, these Israelites uh, exited the wilderness, and they entered into the promised land. And as God had given them this promised land, 
I wrote down here, he had given them fields that they had not planted. He'd given them wells that they had not dug. He'd given them houses that they had not built. And he'd given them cities that they had not established. Basically, God relocated his children from one side of the tracks to the better part of town. Or to the better part of the desert, however you want to put it. Like, they got to move on up to something much better that God had promised them. But it took them 40 years to get there. After this big move had happened, God created a special festival for the Israelites so that they would always remember this 40-year period of their life where God had provided for them, where God was faithful to them and given them protection while they were out in the desert. This feast still happens today. This feast is called the Feast of Tabernacles. During one week uh, each year during the fall harvest season, all Jewish men, but all Jews, were required to travel back to Jerusalem. And once they arrived to Jerusalem or the greater Jerusalem area, they were told they would be there from a Sabbath through a Sabbath. But when they got there, they were told that they needed to live in the desert, in the wilderness, just like they had when they had been outside before. So they built things called booths. I see Oh, I don't see that. You'll see some pictures up there, maybe some possible booths. They had to build a very temporary, very temporary, like a one-week-long temporary shelter out of sticks and twigs and leaves and branches of the, the stuff that they would find in the immediate area around Jerusalem. The best that I could equate it for our party would be kind of like a shelter you'd see that a survivalist would build. After a week, it would be dried branches and everything. It wouldn't be good for anything except maybe kindling to be thrown out there. But that's what people were required to build and to live in during the seven-day period that they would be in Jerusalem. During the night, they were told that they were just supposed to celebrate God's faithfulness and protection. And this feast, again, as I said, still happens. You can find some other writings about what took place during this Feast of Tabernacles in something called the Mishnah. It's a Jewish commentary on the law. Let me just read so you understand kind of what was prescribed to the Israelites when they were there. It says, at the close of the first holy day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would descend from the court of the Israelites down into the court of the women. In that court, four huge candelabras were placed, each with four golden bowls at the top and a ladder, a ladder climbing to each bowl. The candelabras are to be 50 cubits in height. Now, if we do the math, either, that's about 75 feet each. Again, you might find some pictures. These are artist renderings because we don't have those anymore. We can't see them. But you have the, the, the inner court, the, the area that we knew. But the, the court of women it was really the outer part, the, the part that most people could come into. And out in that area, they were told to put these four candelabras that are about 75 feet tall. On the top of them were these four huge bowls that were filled with about 10 gallons of oil each. Every day they found the, the younger religious men strapped these backpacks on them, made them scamper up the pole and fill these 10 gallons each at a time of oil. And then what they would use for the wick were the worn out clothes of the priests and the Levites. This is what they would put in there and then at night they would light it and it would burn all night long. In fact, when you read different things, it was called the illumination of the temple. That's what this ceremony was called. And again, when you read through some Jewish writings, it was said that when those burned so brightly that all of Jerusalem, not just the temple, but all of Jerusalem had light. Now, for us, sometimes I think, how bright would that have to be? Like, I see lights around here, and we've come a long way, but I forget that there were no street lamps, and there were no lights already just on. When it got dark back then, it got dark. 
And so now when you have these four giant candelabras burning that are above the walls of uh, the courtyard, they are lighting up everything. This is a light that most people never, ever saw except for like this annual feast. And when we hear all this and we read about it, you would think, oh, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, so this must be a solemn experience. It, it wasn't. This was meant to be kind of just a, an all-night party going on. This was meant to be, hey, I want you to remember and to celebrate what I, God, did for you. And so when these things were lit at night, the celebration began. The men were called to come out and they were to, to, to dance and to sing and to, to have a good time and to recite prayers and march up and down the steps and just to have a joyous time in the name of the Lord. I was thinking, you know, maybe it's like a holy version of Coachella for all I know. Or maybe for you older folks, a godly version of Woodstock, okay? Like if we could say such a thing. But that's what's going on. This seven-day festival out there going on day after day. The candles would go out the, the morning. They'd refill them that night, the celebration. And so I don't know if they stayed up all night. I just know it was designed to be a big house party, night party, all these evenings. Then it says, we read, that on the seventh day of the festival, the last day there, at about three o'clock in the afternoon, the high priest would lead a procession through the streets of Jerusalem down to the pool of Siloam to fill a golden pitcher with living water from that pool. We've heard of most of those things. Then returning to the temple, the high priest took the golden pitcher of water and along with the silver pitcher filled with wine, he poured both of them out before the Lord. Then the high priest would say, or the high priest would pray saying this, God in heaven, send your Messiah soon. Send him in our days. We, your children, cry out to you, our Father, to send us the long-awaited Messiah. Because the Jewish leaders knew that in Scripture, this Messiah was promised. It was talked about. He was coming, and he was going to be the light in their world that was mentioned. You go back and read through Scripture in the Old Testament, New Testament, a lot of references to light. They knew all about this. So the question is, why am I telling you all of that? Because that was to give us some context 1,500 years before Jesus as to what's going to take place now. Let's bump up to where Jesus is 2,000 years later. The temple is radically different because it's gone through some destructions and rebuildings and now Herod's temple and it looks a little differently, but they were still coming together and having this incredible feast of tabernacles. And most scholars believe that this text that we're reading here today comes from the end of that annual celebration. The candelabras had burned for seven nights. The this water and the, the wine ceremony had been completed. And the high priest had just said their perpetual prayer to please send us a Messiah. The one that they waited on from Yahweh. And at the end of all of that, if you can imagine, Jesus in, in this courtyard says that Jesus spoke to the people saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, I've always grown up in Sunday school class, and for those of you that taught me, thank you. I appreciate it. I've always been told that Jesus was an incredible teacher. He had great stories and great metaphors. He knew the people. He knew the context. He knew the history. But he also knew timing. When you look at things, Jesus timed things so well that it all came together. And this is an incredible amount of timing for Jesus. Can, can you imagine, on the last day, the religious ceremony's done. Like I said, the lights have burned out. And Jesus is basically standing near this courtyard. And he says, I am the light of the world. 
I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, I'm the light that has been written about in Scripture. I'm the Messiah who's been promised and prophesied about. I have been sent by my Father. I will not just illuminate this dark city at night. I will illuminate the whole entire dark world. The people were confused by what he was saying here. We might be confused sometimes when we read this because we don't understand all the stuff that goes into it, but this was not a confusing statement in fact, it's what we would call a warrant. That didn't happen there. In fact, he picked probably the biggest stage that was available at that time because there are some numbers that say there could have been a million Jews that come back every year for this. Now, they're all hearing him because he's not amplified, but the word would get out. He was in the center where all this stuff took place. People would understand his message. He knew and they knew what his comments meant and what the context was. It was an intentional set of words created or made that would cause people to make some kind of a decision. If you read back through chapters 7 through 9, you're going to see that there's a lot of information there and there's some things that will help us understand this whole concept of I am the light of the world. And I want to highlight just three of those here briefly. I want to mention them to you so you can walk out here and say, well, what, what, what does Jesus saying I am the light of the world mean? Like I understand now the history and the context of why it would be so powerful for them, but what does it mean to us here? What does it mean by what Jesus said? So I thought I want to make it memorable and I wanted to do some things and so... Sorry, especially if you're a teacher in here. I just came up with the three R's that go along with this. And the reason for that is because it seems like everything in our world has three R's. I literally looked it up. There are the three R's of education, conservation, of personal safety, the three R's of economics, childbirth, healthcare, animal research, and the New Deal. So why not the three R's of light of the world? That was my feeling here. And I wanted to make it easy for us. The first one is simply this. When Jesus made that statement, I'm the light of the world, it was all about revelation. Jesus was saying, let me tell you more about my father. Now, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever heard the phrase, like father, like son? Usually when I've heard it, there's a bit of sarcasm directed at one of those two individuals. Because it's like, oh, sorry, you're like your dad, or oh, sorry, kids. Or, you know, like, it doesn't always go well, but, but we get that. This, however, when we would say like father, like son, this would be the perfect example of the perfect father-son. This is a compliment. This is a great thing. Jesus reveals his heavenly father to us. He tells the Pharisees that he came to reveal them because they claimed that they know him, but they did not really know Yahweh. Down in verse 19, if you've got your uh, Bible open in chapter 8, you would see Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know my Father. And back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, in what we call the prologue, there's a part that says, no one has ever seen God, but only the Son, who knows the Father, and has made him known. Jesus is saying, you really don't know him. You say you know him, but I'm here to reveal or to give you a revelation about my heavenly Father. And as the light of the world, I can bring that revelation to you and to everyone. That's one of the R's. The second one is this word and this idea of redemption. Keep in mind, before Jesus walked on earth, the Israelites lived under the law. They had a limited sacrificial system and they placed their worth in being a descendant of Abraham. That was what they could beat their chest and say, this is what we're proud of. We are a descendant of Abraham, therefore we're taken care of. We always will be. Look, and, and this, is, this was their calling card. This is what they could say that nobody else could say. 
Then John the Baptist comes around during Jesus' time, and, and he is talking. But at one point, John the Baptist would say, from these very stones of the wilderness, God can raise up children of Abraham. If your pride is being in the bloodline of an individual, and then some itinerant preacher walks by and says, oh, you know, I can just make more of you. God can out of these rocks here. That probably doesn't set well with you. Because you can't say I'm holding on to that. That's, that's really what is super important. But John is making the point that it shouldn't have been as important as what they made it out to be. That if God wanted to create more children of Abraham, that he could do so just out of the rocks and stones laying around on the ground. He says your life doesn't depend on that heritage that you claim so boldly in your bloodline. You can no longer require, or you can no longer rest on that in what you say. It is now about the light and the light that brings us life. And John was letting people know this message before Jesus came and spoke these words and made these claims. Chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus is even talking. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. He's basically going through saying, if you don't believe in me for who I am and who I am saying that I am, you will die in your sins. He doesn't say, unless, of course, you're a child of Abraham. He takes that out, and that's always the disclaimer. That was always the, the, the free ticket to get to where they were going. That's not what's being claimed anymore here. So Jesus, as the light of the world, brought redemption to the world the way God had always planned. I'd always heard that, well, maybe God had a redemption plan. You read through the Old Testament, sacrifices, and you take care of these things, and that didn't work out, so he finally sent Jesus. No. Jesus was always plan A. The other was leading up to. It was the setup to understand Jesus. It was the part that led us up to this so that when he did come, everybody would understand what God was trying to make clear. And Jesus just says, I'm the redemption plan. We could talk about the facts that we all know, and we could talk about um, the things that we all believe, and we could sometimes hold on to our religion and say, you know, this is, um, this is what's going to get me someplace. My parents were religious. I've always gone to church. I went with a, We've heard all those different things, and a lot of us would say, that doesn't make a real difference. It's who you believe Jesus is that makes a difference. One of my favorite all-time bits of literature comes from a man named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a Christian author. Uh, you probably have read some of his works, but back in 1952, he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, he's making some arguments for Christianity. And it's actually, if I remember correctly, these were um, transcripts, or he, he turned into a book, the, his verbal conversations he had had over the radio airwaves in England back during wartime. So, you know, some 10 years later, after some of this stuff's going on, he's writing books and he's sending this out. But anyways, at one point, he's talking about Jesus, and he's British, so this might be a, a little tough to understand the things, and it's 70 years old, so that might make it a little tough too, but I think you'll get the gist of what he's writing about here. It's a section that a lot of people call Liar, Lunatic, and Lord. And I know I've mentioned it before, but let me read what C.S. Lewis uh, put in his book here. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that is often said, which is this that I accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. He's trying to help people say, you, you don't want to say that. That's foolish. You, you can't. 
He goes on to say, this is the one thing that we must not say. You cannot say that. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level as a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman, or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense that he is being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Then he just goes on to write, now it seems obvious to me, C.S. Lewis, that Jesus was neither a liar nor a lunatic. And that comes from the arguments he made earlier. So consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem to any of the readers, I have to accept the fact that this view is that Jesus was and is God. So he's trying to take a lot of people's arguments for trying to write Jesus off as a great man, a person who lived but not God. He's just saying you can't really when you look at the evidence. And I know other people have said things since then, and maybe you've heard that, but I just love it because it really comes down to you can try to write him off this way, you can try to write him off this way, but you can't. And at the end of the day, the only real logical conclusion is that he is Lord. Now you can make those other choices, but that's not the logic that he is coming to here. As light of the world, Jesus brought us redemption for our sins. And he separated us, um, the, the, the sin, the darkness that came into a world that separated us from God. So God's plan of redemption is Jesus. And if we accept that, then we accept him as Lord. If we don't, we might come up with other ways. But as Jesus says, and we find out later in Scripture, another I am passage, there are no other ways. There's just one. I want to tell you about that one because that's another sermon for another day. But maybe we can hear some about that and we can know really truly in our hearts that God is opposed to the darkness. Because we know that because he sent the light of the world into the darkness so that we could be redeemed from it. So redemption was that second word. The third R though isn't as flowery and isn't as fun but it's this concept and word of rejection. As the light of the world, Jesus brought revelation, he brought redemption, and now rejection. Because some people will reject that claim. Even the thing, the argument I made for you that C.S. Lewis put there, some people will choose not to do that. Some people will not at all accept Jesus for who he is, even knowing he's the creator. In, in John, verses 9 through 11, we read that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, or, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's very clear that he's the one that created, and he came to that creation, and the creation kind of went, Who are you? Not everyone, but a number of people. That's what God was sending Jesus to. That's what he came into. And you would think that of all the people that could have been, uh, of all the people that were alive during Jesus' time, 
Uh, all the people on the earth, obviously Jesus was there in Jerusalem and is with the Israelites. All of those folks knew about Jesus, not necessarily by name, but by description, because these were people that had God's leading, God's word. These were God's children. It was talked about this coming Messiah. Everybody there knew who he was in theory, without a name attached, but they knew that this person was coming. This light of the world, he was promised, he was going to be sent to him, he'd been prophesied, all of these things, and yet those folks are the ones, many of them, that did nothing with it. They wouldn't accept who he was, they wouldn't believe it. Even though they'd had this festival, and they did these things to remind them what's going on and they knew of the promises and they did these rituals and then they had a prayer, please send us that Messiah. And then Jesus says, I am he. They're like, yeah, whatever, okay. And so they just kind of kept going on. And I know sometimes I look at this and I read this and I think, sorry if I say this here, but how stupid can they be? But then I realized if I was there, I might be one of those people you all would be saying, how stupid can he be? Because maybe it wasn't as crystal clear. We know that not everybody just fell on their knees and accepted the message. Some did, some did not. In fact, if you read through, you will see in chapter 8, three different responses that were given by the people that heard Jesus. In verse 13, it tells us that some of the, the religious people rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They heard it, shook their heads, walked away, thought, lunatic running around in the courtyard, glad this festival's over, I'm going home. Verse 25 said, some were inquisitive enough that they requested more from him. Like, like who are you? Like, tell us again who you are and what it is that you're doing. Because they had an interest that was piqued. And down in verse 30 it says that others believed and received him. Some rejected him, some requested more, some received him. That was the reaction and the response of the crowd 2,000 years ago. I would say those same three concepts come up in our life here today. 2,000 years later, we hear about God, we hear about Jesus, and we have to make some sort of decision also about him. You know, we live 2,000 years later, like I said, we know about Jesus, we get these, we know that he is the light of the world sent into the darkness to, to clear that out to redeem us, to reveal God to us. Some people will accept that. Some people will reject that. I know many of you who are here today. I know many of you have already received Jesus. You've accepted him into your heart. And I'm so thankful for that. When I hear the stories, that is why Pastor Josh, myself, our leaders, that's why any Christian does what we do, is to bring more people to the salvation, to the saving knowledge and grace of Christ. That's why we do this. Thank you for those that have received him already. But I know that there may be some people here or online watching, or they're going to watch this later and say, I'm not quite sure yet. I would like to request a little more information. I want to know a little more about this. I'm not sold yet. Help me know more about him. If that is where you're at today, or, or if you're saying, no, 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 I've been ready. I haven't talked to anybody or after hearing this, I am ready to receive him now. Today, I, I want to have that conversation. I want to know who you are. I, we want to know so that we can help you take further steps or to help you cross a line, to, to accept Jesus, to receive him. 
So what I'm going to ask for you, we'll pray in just a moment, but I'm going to ask in front of you in the back of the chairs, you will find a card. It's a connection card. There's a place for you to write your name and a phone number on there. And down at the bottom, it just says comments or prayer requests or something like that. There's some empty lines. If you will just either write request, as in request more info, or receive, as in receive Jesus, I'll know what that means. What I'm going to ask you to do is write on there, and when we conclude our service, there'll be a collection plate at the doors on the way out. Put them in the plates. We'll have an opportunity then to see those and contact you and have further conversation about all of this. Jesus told his followers then and now that when we get to know the Son better, we would understand the Father better. That's the revelation. He also said that he, Jesus, is the source of light in a spiritually dark world, and he is the provider of everlasting life for those who believe in him. That's the redemption. Jesus also told us all that the consequence of being open and honest about our sin, Jesus being open and honest about our sin, would cause some people to reject him. That breaks my heart. I know it breaks God's heart. I know it breaks the heart of anybody who is a believer in Jesus, knowing that some people will say no. We don't expect. We've been told not everyone will say yes. I don't like that. But I, get, I don't get to change that. I'm just called to keep telling people the good news of Christ and let those that make the change make the change so that they can have that eternal life with their Heavenly Father. And that all comes because of Jesus Christ. John 8, 12 said, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Jesus' claim. It's who he says he is. We can choose to believe it or not. That's on us. But Jesus is God's plan for us. I'm going to ask if you would go ahead close your eyes. I'm going to pray. We're going to end this part of our message. And again, I want to remind you at the end, if you make some decision here today, write that on a card and drop it off for us later on. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you. We thank you so much for the opportunity to gather and to talk and to share. And Father, to go back and, and to understand some history and some context uh, of, of the scripture, the passage that we're talking about, so that we can better understand what it is that we speak of. I pray that that's been the case here today. I pray it's something that, as I had learned over the years, that maybe this is information that would be new and interesting and beneficial to my, my friends who are here. Father, but again, it really has nothing to do with my words or how I have said it. I, Lord, I, I just spit it out and I know I make mistakes. So I pray, Father, that you work despite the person presenting the message. That you will allow people to hear what is said and the proper understanding of it so that they can make those decisions. The most important of all is one for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we want to be a church that always offers this good news, this, this gospel message that Jesus and Jesus alone is what we need to be reunited with you. Father, thank you for allowing us to have that message every week. Thank you for allowing us to have a different sermon series and going through the I am's right now that we learn from those because we really want to know who Jesus says that he is because who he is is who we believe in and who he is impacts how we as modern day believers 
live and share that news with others. So Lord, thank you so very much for that. Father, I pray right now in advance for the decisions that may be made, the information that might be requested, or those who are ready to receive you. In your son's name I pray, amen.